Uh, with that, if you have a Bible with you today, I want to invite you to find Ephesians chapter 6. All right, we've been going through the book, the letter of Ephesians this summer. This is our ninth week, and this is our final week. All right, this is, we, are, we are wrapping it up today. Uh, and Ephesians has been incredibly challenging for me. Um, and it's been just eye-opening the way that Paul was talking to the early church and how we expected this community to, to look and to act and to treat each other. And um, it's just been, it's been great going through this. And so Paul's been trying to paint this picture of what does it look like to live as a Jesus follower, but not just in isolation. What does it look like to live as a Jesus follower in community? All right, because there really is no, there's nowhere in scripture that says this is what it looks like to live as a follower of Jesus in isolation, because that's not how this was meant to be. Uh, you'll really only ever see things in community. And, and so he calls this, uh, last week we looked at this, he calls this a new humanity. All right, a new humanity. And that's kind of what, he, what he's going through. He talks about removing the old clothes of this old humanity, allowing God, allowing the Holy Spirit to renew your mind and just the way that you live and putting on the new clothes of this new humanity. That's the analogy that Paul uses. All right? Um, and, and one of the biggest ways that this happens and is displayed to the world around us is living through a life of unity with other believers. Unity is like the main theme out of the letter of Ephesians. Uh, but that is difficult to do because as you take off the old clothes of the old way that you used to live and you put on this new humanity, one of the things that Paul was kind of walking this line is you don't get rid of necessarily what makes you, you. Like things that are unique about you. So it's this weird tension of kind of putting off the old, putting on this new, but we're not all turning into the exact same homogenous person. We still probably have different ethnicities and different cultures and different backgrounds. And those are meant to actually be preserved as we do this process. So you can see why trying to bring people together in this way is going to be difficult. There are toes that are going to be stepped on. And Paul is trying to say, okay, we will show the world that we are following Jesus by the unity and the love that we have for each other. Because in the world, if you try and bring people together that are different, they are threatened by those differences. Whereas for you, you are actually strengthened by those differences. Your strengths will offset each other's weaknesses. And so it's this amazing picture that we have. And we are going to end today in a way that I, I hope will bring some closure and encouragement to this. Um, as we attempt to live out some of the, the same task that Paul gave to the early church in Ephesus as we try and do that ourselves. So I want us just to be ready um, for God to maybe change our thinking, our, the way that we live our life, uh, and make it more like his. And so here's how I'd love to start. If you're willing, if you're able, would you stand with me? I want to just open us in prayer, uh, and then we're going to continue on in this message. So God, we, just, we thank you that we can gather together right now. Lord, we thank you for this community, whether we've been part of this community for decades or this is our first time walking through the door, God, that this would feel like a community that we belong in, uh, God, a community where we are seen and where we are loved, we are encouraged, and so uh, we just pray that even as we go into your word together, God, as we spend time digging into scripture, that we would do this as a community and we would be changed, not just as individuals, but as a whole. God, and so we, we ask this in your name. Amen. All right, you guys can take a seat. The first little bit that we're going to look at in Ephesians 6 is probably uh, one of the most famous or well-known parts of the letter to the Ephesians, and that is the armor of God. All right, and this is talked about often. Like, as, as a child, this analogy was used in Sunday school and various teachings, like, all the time. Uh, I had a big poster on my wall next to the poster of a Lamborghini and a Plymouth Prowler from the Scholastic Book Fair, right? Because every year at the Scholastic Book Fair, I did not get books. I got a car poster, all right? So I have those posters on my wall as a kid, and then I have this poster of this big soldier standing there with all the armor of God on and a little arrow going to each piece and describing it and all these different things. And so I still, I can, I can see that in my mind. Um, and, and I went to bed at night just looking at this big 
warrior with an absolutely massive sword that was pretty cool, right? Uh, and because as a young boy, I loved the idea of weapons and fighting. I loved to play with army men. I'd set them up all over the house. Uh, and I think that's pretty typical. Uh, my kids do this too. Like, it, it hasn't really changed. Uh, and every stick outside, you know, is fashioned into some type of a gun or a sword. Uh, chicken nuggets are bitten to look like certain weapons. And, you know, they're shooting each other across the, the dinner table and all these different things. Like, so, so to hear that, that I am a soldier as I, was, as I would read through the armor of God, like, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and, and I think when you're in Sunday school, lots of times, like, uh, a lot of the stories would be focused on the Old Testament. Like, I remember, and, and you can think of maybe the, the flannel graph. How many of you guys were in the flannel graph time? There was a nice black wall, and you'd, you'd put up the little flannel graph that you punched out on there, and they'd, they'd walk around, and you'd make these stories, and you'd talk about them. And, and so many of them were, were Old Testament stories. Um, you'd have stories about Jesus out of the Gospels, but the letters were kind of hard to do that with. Um, but I think about this, and so much of my time uh, as a kid focusing on the Bible was in the Old Testament. And it was the Israelites, and they were, they were always fighting. They were always in war, and they were, they were fighting with other countries, and they were, they were going in trying to take the promised land. And so they, they are warring with the nations that were already there. And, and then once they take the promised land, they're trying to defend it from other nations that are coming in. And, and so in the Old Testament, you, just, you always have stories of, of battles and fighting and, and all these different things. All right, and so I, I grew up just focused on that. And, and actually, we, even, we used to sing a song. Um, and it's funny because today uh, we have someone visiting who actually was one of my Sunday school teachers when I was growing up. And so she's probably sitting here thinking about all these different things. Um, because I grew up over in Little Falls. And, and, but we had this song, and we would sing this. Okay, and I want to see how many of you guys maybe sang this song as well. So if I were to say, I may never. Okay, so some of you guys got this, all right? March in the infantry. Ride in the cavalry. Okay, what do you do with your hands here? Shoot the artillery. Zoom or the enemy. Okay, like this is a song that we sang as kids. And Okay, the younger generation here is like, Okay, all the junk you give us for doing these TikTok dances, we're even, because that's terrible. <laughs> all right, and so like, I, I think back on these things, uh, you know, and it's just one of those things where we talk so often about like war and fighting, that you would think that as a, as a believer, that as an adult, that maybe that'd be part of my life more. It's kind of like, we talk so often about stop, drop, and roll when you catch fire, like, I would have thought that as an adult, I would have caught fire multiple times by now. It was drilled into me so often in elementary school. This is what you do if you catch fire. And I'm like, I don't know if, like, clothes used to be more flammable and kids are just running through the streets on fire or something. But it's like, like, you have things that are talked about a lot as a kid. And you'd think that they would be a big theme later on in life. And I think that within Christianity when I was young, like, this idea of, of war and battle and fighting, like, it was talked about so often. But I think that, I think there's a problem with this because we come into our faith with God with an idea and this, like, militaristic view and nature in our life. You know, and think about that. Like, how is that going to impact the way I interact with the world around me? With other Christians who believe different from me? What about with the world that believes maybe very differently from how I do? How am I going to interact in those situations if my mindset growing up as a Christian was a very battle-oriented type of mindset? And two weeks ago, I brought up the idea or the phrase of like fighting for what we believe in. Um, this is such a common phrasing and mindset. So imagine my surprise when I actually start to dig into the Bible and as I start to read through the story of Jesus and I start to see the early church and what Paul is saying to them and it has almost the exact opposite mindset. Jesus says to love your enemy. We're told to lay down our lives for people around us. You know, no greater love than this. He would lay down his life for his friend. And that doesn't mean that we die fighting like I'm laying down my life because I, I fought with everything I had and it just was too much and I died. It, it means just laying 
down your life. And last week, we looked at this phrase from Paul, and he says that, that husbands, we are to lay down our lives for our wives, the same way that Christ did for the church. And so you have this mindset that is very, very different from, I think, what I would have thought. Jesus was led to the slaughter like a lamb. He didn't feel the need to defend himself or to fight back, but to just die for what he believed in. And that's in contrast, like we had said to Peter, who Peter gets up and says, Lord, I would die for you. But when push comes to shove and people come to arrest Jesus, is Peter willing to die for him? No, he's willing to kill for him. And that's a very different mindset. He pulls his sword. He goes for a guy. I don't know if he had really good aim or really bad aim. He cuts off his ear. And then following that, Jesus says, no, this isn't the way. And Peter takes off and then begins to follow at a distance. And when I go and read through the Gospels and the way that Jesus interacted with the world and those in power over him, especially those who sought to hurt him, I just, I see a different picture. And when I read through Paul's letters and the other apostles of how we should interact with the world, I see a different picture from this militarized form of Christianity. So before we even read about the armor of God, we need to put it into its rightful place with the rest of Scripture. We, we can't be transported outside of Ephesians for several verses and make this say something different from what the rest of the letter does. That's not being true to the Bible. We have to understand the context of these things. And remember, one of the themes that we said at the beginning of Ephesians as we are reading through, because themes in the letters, they'll show up in the first and second chapter usually, and then follow all the way through. One of the themes was that we were given power by God. But what was that power? That power was to bring life instead of death. In a world that is taking life, we bring life. The followers of Jesus. God's kingdom. And so we have to hold passages like this in tension with what the rest of this letter has said. That we, we are bringing life, not death. So do you think Paul could turn around and then paint a picture where we are instead fighting and waging war and bringing death? And so we have to remember these things. If you're reading this and it leads to you to be fighting other people and picking up a war, then, then you're not being faithful to what the Bible and what this letter is saying right here. Now remember, just before this, we are being told to take off the old clothes and put on new clothes of a new humanity. Okay, so we've taken off old clothes, we're putting on new clothes. And I think what we're meant to see here is that Paul's saying, hey, by the way, this new humanity... Buckle up, because it's difficult, it's hard, you're going to be attacked. So those clothes you're putting on, we're going to put a second layer on. All right, and so that's, I think, kind of what, when we see this within its context. So I'm going to read, starting in verse 10. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. All right, so I, what Paul's trying to get across right here is he's saying, hey, the new clothes, like in a way, you got to beef that up. It, it's, it's not enough here. You're going to face trials every single day. And I think there's two big points that we need to realize here. All right. Um, the first big point is this. You are not fighting against other image bearers of God. We're not fighting against humans. This isn't a battle against your neighbor or your coworker or the person of another political party. This battle is being waged on a spiritual level. And that idea may seem difficult for us at times because we don't fully understand the spiritual realm and what it entails and what our role in it is. And the dangers pertaining to the spiritual realm usually stem from people taking it to the extremes on one side or the other. Either they completely ignore that there is a spiritual realm, that there are things happening within a spiritual world that we do not always see. Or either they completely ignore it they don't want to talk about it. It doesn't exist. It doesn't matter to me. 
All right, now that's not really healthy. Scripture seems to paint a very real picture of a spiritual world. And it's part of the world that we live in. Or they go to the other extreme and think that everything is spiritual all the time and they become obsessed and have an unhealthy interest in all things spiritual. All right, and this is, it's a fine line to walk in the middle. To not be like, ah, you know what? I don't even know what's going on. It's easier just to kind of like turn my head the other way. Or to be like, oh, wow, there is so much going on. This is crazy. I'm going to really dig into this. And that's not always a bad thing, but we can reach a place of having an unhealthy obsession or interest with some of these things. The second piece of this for us to understand with the armor of God is it is primarily all defensive for us. All right? We don't have the bow and arrows of apologetics or the catapult of good Facebook responses. Okay, like this is not things that we are equipped with. There is a sword, but we are going to get to that. All right? Primarily, we are looking at pieces of clothing that will help us stand in the midst of trials and persecution so that we can continue to wear the clothes of new humanity. And the language here is be strong in the Lord. Okay, that's in his power, not in ours. In his power. Stand firm. Okay, this isn't like you're running and advancing and taking ground. This is stand firm against the attacks. This is much more defensive, passive language here. And it says, therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will, you will still be standing firm. Then verse 14 starts, stand your ground. Like you, you hear all those things. It's about standing Firm, standing your ground, staying where you are, not being moved, not being pushed over. This isn't necessarily aggressive fighting language. Then, then he lists off the armor. Okay, this is verses 14 through 17. It says, the belt of truth. Okay, and Christians, we absolutely should be described as truthful. This belt of truth, a lot of these will kind of have multiple pieces to it. And, and a belt of truth can be the fact that God, what he says is true, and that that's holding us. Also, that we should be our nature, our demeanor should be truthful as believers. And a belt is very necessary. Actually, this morning, I forgot to put one on before I ran out of the house. And I was fine, okay, it wasn't going to be like, I wasn't going to be holding my pants the whole time. But I don't know if there'd be anything more embarrassing, <laughs> right, than pants just like falling down. And it would, it would be awful. And that's how we should feel as Christians. When something does not come across as truthful, if we are not 100% positive, we need to be careful, especially nowadays, what we say. That it is not hearsay. It's not this person said that and they know, you know, or this. Like uh, We are so quick to pass some of those things on. Like Truth should be something that absolutely holds us firm and tight. And he says the armor of righteousness. Now this word righteousness... It's not this like pious, like I am better than you. It is, um, so, some scriptures will even translate it as justice. It is doing the right thing. It is living righteously, doing what you know is right to do. All right? Shoes of peace. The good news, the gospel, that someone came to die for you. Okay, so if you have shoes of peace, to tell people that someone came to die for you, you're probably not turning around and waging war on them. The shield of faith. And this is our faith. It also is God's faithfulness to us. That that is what is going to cause us to stand firm. The helmet of salvation. And lastly, the sword of the spirit, which says is the word of God. All right, and I want to talk real quickly about the sword. This is important. If you're like me, I grew up thinking that the sword was, was something specific that, that I see written in English here, okay, the Word of God. What often do we refer to as the Word of God? The Bible. The Bible. We, we refer to this as the Word of God all the time. So when we read this in the English translation, I think I, I was very quick to say, okay, the sword is the Bible. And I grew up in church doing sword drills. All right? 
Again, some of you may know what that is. We'd put the Bible on our head, and they'd shout out a random verse, and you had to grab the Bible. You couldn't have tabs on it. That was cheating. You had to know where that book of the Bible was. You had to find it quick, and the first person to shout out the first word would get it, right? Like, that was a sword drill. So, like, we talk about this as the sword and different things. So there's a little bit of a problem with that. Unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be what Paul is actually referencing here when he says the word of God. If Paul wanted to say the Bible or scriptures, which remember at this time didn't really fully exist the way that it does for us, if he wanted to say scriptures, he would have used the Greek word graphe. All right, and that would have been the word. It would have been very easy to see. And as you can see behind me, that Greek word is translated as scriptures or word of the prophets because the, the, the letters or some of the books in the Bible were from the prophets. That is always that. Okay? Now, instead, he uses rhema, which is translated a bunch of different ways. Okay, and if you actually go through and look at all the different ways that this Greek word, so this is that word there that says word of God, it's much more of, uh, it's used in the Gospels a lot. It's used, I think, mainly in like the book of John. has a ton of it. Because remember, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And so it's, it's what God says. It's what Jesus says. It's this, it's this message from him. And so it is and it isn't this. Paul definitely was not saying the scriptures are the sword. Because if he wanted to say that, he would have clearly said it. And this is where sometimes when we translate things into English, we can miss stuff. Now, why does this matter? Because Paul was not telling you to take your Bible and beat another person over the head with it, literally or figuratively. All right? That is not what he is saying in this moment. The Bible is not meant to be weaponized. It is not a, a weapon to fight culture, and whoever you want to hit with it is your enemy. And those two messages right there, like if internalized by Jesus' followers, would immediately help in keeping people closer to God. Instead of the sword being the Bible, it is God's word, it is his judgment, and if that's what the only offensive weapon is that we have, understand this then, our only offensive weapon is not even in our hands. It's in God's. Because it's his word. Are you tracking with this? I know this might be, you might be sitting there being like, I don't know about this. And it's because, you know, I think so often we were, we were taught in very specific ways. And we were raised reading things a certain way. And understanding it a certain way. But as I began to wrestle with this passage here and say, how does this fit into the greater letter of Ephesians? How is Paul not completely jumping out and saying something completely different from everything else? And as you dig into this and you begin to look at this, you're going to see what's going on here. That's why the armor of God is, is all about defensive. It's about taking blows and standing firm, not necessarily about fighting back. When you put on this new humanity, you need to beef up because it won't be easy. You will be attacked. And your job and my job is to take that attack with a smile as we tell them that Jesus not only loves us, but loves them. Because we have to remember, they aren't the ones that are actually trying to hurt us. It may feel that way, but the enemy is not flesh and blood. The attacks aren't coming from them. They are coming from the spiritual darkness that is in this world. And our response what we look like when we put all of this armor on, the demeanor that we live with is the next verse after this, and that is to pray constantly. Verse 18 says, pray in the spirit all times, at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. When you put on the full armor of God and you begin to walk in this new humanity with the new clothes of the new humanity, the new armor of God, you are a person of prayer, constantly. This is what a Christian in the full armor of God looks like. Everything they do is bathed in prayer and intentionality. They stand strong. They protect and maintain unity. 
All right, and so here, here's my point. If you're taking notes, write this down. The armor of God doesn't enhance our ability to fight. It prolongs our ability to stand firm for Jesus. That is what the armor of God is. And this is something that for me, I have gotten wrong. And I think that a lot of people that are trying to be faithful to the Bible have gotten wrong. And we stand firm and we wait for our God, who is just, to fight whatever battle needs to be fought for us. Because his judgment is better than mine. His ways are higher than mine. He knows what to do. He can tell the difference between friend and foe a lot easier than I can. I would much rather trust him with my own emotionally damaged perception and outlook on the world like that, than trying to trust myself. All right? And that is a completely different understanding than what, um, than what I have held. And that's a completely different understanding than the poster that hung on my wall as a child. And a different message than what a very toxic portion of modern day Christianity would try to have you believe. And we have to get away from that. I'll even say we need to distance ourselves from Christians who would want to use their voice and, and tell us that we are in a war that we are fighting and we need to attack other image bearers of God. And this is a difficult message. I am glad this is the last week and not the first week in Ephesians. Because a lot of you would have been gone a lot more this summer, I think. This is difficult. And this understanding that we are not fighting that we are standing firm. This understanding is the same understanding that thousands of Christians before us have believed as they have been fed to lions, as they have been burned as torches to light the streets, as they have been hung on crosses, and as they have been killed by people who have been inspired by the evil rulers of the unseen realm. This is the understanding that they had. And it's what Paul and Jesus are calling us to. And the whole letter can't be about unity and peace and life, not death, and then finish with marching orders to go and fight. It can't. It doesn't work that way. We need to interpret the Bible through the Bible and understand that the type of interpretation that goes against all of its surrounding passages can't be right. This is why we need to stop reading scripture verses and start reading letters. Start reading larger portions, larger chunks, right? But I want to wake up, and as I'm drinking my coffee, I want to just open up Bible app and, and read two verses and then a cute little devo of how I apply that. Understand that as we read Scripture in that way, our likelihood of misinterpreting things skyrockets. And we need to be reading larger portions. And here's what I'm going to do. I was thinking about this. I'm going to end our series, and I'm going to read through the entire letter of Ephesians. All right, that's why we cut worship a little bit shorter. I've cut my message shorter. I wanted to make sure that we had time to do this. This is the way that it was intended to be understood and to be heard. You know, and I want you to transport yourself like we are in a gathering with other followers of Jesus in the city of Ephesus, and we come together in a gathering and someone that we don't know is standing up front and the person leading the church says, hey, we have a message. We have a new message from the Apostle Paul and this is important and this is going to matter and all of us are like, wow, this is amazing. What is it that he's going to say to us? And it's the Apostle Paul, so he's probably going to yell at us a little bit and correct us. And I, I wonder where it is that he's going to do that and what is it that we're getting wrong here? And you have that type of excitement as someone goes through and reads this letter. And so I, I'm going to finish with this, and it, it's probably going to take 15 minutes. But I, honestly, I think this is one of the best ways of communal worship that we can do this morning. So when I say that we cut worship a little short, well, that, that's a dumb comment to make. Because we didn't. Because all of this is. And I have never done this before. And I made sure to bring up a water today because I'm probably going to get thirsty as I'm going here. All right? And here's what I want from us. It's not going to be on the screen behind me. 
I want instead for us to take this in as one big cohesive message. Because that's what it was. There wasn't chapters, there weren't verses. It was just a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul who had some specific things he wanted to say, themes he wanted to follow, and he would run this all the way through the letter. And I think that as we hear this all as one thing, there's going to be parts of this that are going to take on a different light for us today. As we see it, and where it falls in the letter, and what's around it, and the things that are being said. And I am purposely reading out of a translation that I don't think many of you, or any of you, maybe, I know a few people, that many of you have probably read from. Because I want this to come across as a little bit new and fresh for us. And so if you want to close your eyes, if you want to sit back, you want to get comfortable, I'm going to read through this. And then I will close us in prayer and, and we'll be done with the letter of Ephesians. From Paul, one of King Jesus' apostles through God's purpose to the holy ones in Ephesus who are also loyal believers in King Jesus. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus, the King, give you grace and peace. Let us bless God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, the King. He's blessed us in the, he has blessed us in the king with every spirit-inspired blessing in the heavenly realm. He chose us in him before the world was made, so as to be holy and irreproachable before him in love. He foreordained us for himself to be adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus the king. That's how he wanted it, and that's what gave him delight, so that the glory of his grace, the grace he poured on us, in his beloved one, might receive its due praise. In the king and through his blood, we have deliverance. That is, our sins have been forgiven through the wealth of his grace, which he lavished on us. Yes, with all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the secret of his purpose, just as he wanted it to be and set it forward in him, as a blueprint for when the time was ripe. His plan was to sum up the whole cosmos in the king. Yes, everything in heaven and on earth, in him. In him, we have received the inheritance. We were foreordained to this according to the intention of the one who does all things in accordance with the counsel of his purpose. This was so that we, we who first hoped in the king, might live for the praise of his glory. In him, you too, who heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed it, in him you were marked out with the spirit of promise, the Holy One. The Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until the time when the people who are God's special possession are finally reclaimed and freed. This too is for the praise of his glory. Because of all this and because I had heard that you are loyal and faithful to Jesus the Master and that you show love to all God's holy people, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of King Jesus, our Lord, the Father of glory, would give in your spirit the gift of being wise, of seeing things of people can't normally see, because you are coming to know him and to have the eyes of your inmost self opened to God's light. Then you will know exactly what the hope is that goes with God's call. You will know the wealth of the glory of his inheritance in his people, and you will know the outstanding greatness of his power towards us who are loyal to him in faith, according to the working of his strength and power. This was the power at work in the king when God raised him from the dead and sat him at his right hand in the heavenly places, above all rule and authority and power and lordship, above every name that is invoked, both in the present age and also in the age to come. Yes, God has put all things under his feet, and he has given him to the church as the head over all. The church is his body. It is the fullness of the one who fills all in all. So where do you come into it all? Well, you were dead because of your offenses and sins. That was the road you used to travel, keeping in step with the world's present age, in step two with the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is even now at work among people whose whole lives consist of disobeying God. Actually, that's how all of us used to behave, conditioned by physical desires. We used to do what our flesh and our minds were urging us to do. What was the result? We too were subject to wrath and in our natural state, just like everyone else. But when it comes to mercy, God is rich. He had such great love for us that he took us at 
at the very point where we were dead through our offenses and made us alive together with the king. Yes, you are saved by sheer grace. He raised us up with him and made us sit with him in the heavenly places in King Jesus. This was so that in the ages to come, he could show just how unbelievably rich his grace is, the kindness he has shown us in King Jesus. How has this all come about? You have been saved by grace through faith. This doesn't happen on your own initiative. It's God's gift. It isn't on the basis of works. So no one is able to boast. This is the explanation. God has made us what we are. God has created us in King Jesus for the good works that he prepared ahead of time as the road we must travel. So then remember this. In human terms, that is, in your flesh, you are Gentiles. You are the people who are so-called circumcision referred to as the so-called uncircumcision. Circumcision, of course, being something done by human hands to human flesh. Well, once upon a time, you were separated from the king. You were detached from the community of Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants which contain the promise. There you were in the world with no hope and no God. But now in King Jesus, you've been brought near in the king's blood. Yes, you who used to be a long way away. He is our peace, you see. He has made the two to be one. He has pulled down the barrier, the dividing wall that turns us into enemies of each other. He has done this in his flesh by abolishing the law with its commands and instructions. The point of doing all this was to create in him one new human being out of the two, so making peace. God was reconciling both of us to himself in a single body through the cross by killing the enmity in him. So the Messiah came and gave the good news. Peace had come. Peace, that is, for those of you who are a long way away, and peace, too, for those who are close at hand. Through him, you see, we both have access to the Father in the one spirit. This is the result. You are no longer foreigners or strangers. No, you are fellow citizens with God's holy people. You are members of God's household. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with King Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is fitted together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You too are being built up together in him into a place where God will live by the Spirit. It's because of all this that I, Paul, the prisoner of King Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, I'm assuming, by the way, that you've heard about the plan of God's grace that was given to me to pass on to you. You know the secret purpose that God revealed to me as I wrote briefly just now. Anyway, when you read this, you'll be able to understand the special insight I have into the king's secret. This wasn't made known to human beings in previous generations, but now it's been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. The secret is this, that through the gospel, the Gentiles are to share Israel's inheritance. They are to become fellow members of the body along with them and fellow sharers of the promise in King Jesus. This is the gospel that I was appointed to serve in line with the free gift of God's grace that was given to me. It was backed up with the power through which God accomplishes his work. I am the very least of all God's people. However, he gave me this task as a gift, that I should be the one to tell the Gentiles the good news of the king's wealth, wealth no one could begin to count. My job is to make clear to everyone just what the secret plan is, the purpose that's been hidden from the very beginning of the world in God who created all things. This is it, that God's wisdom in all its rich variety was made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places through the church. This was God's eternal purpose, and he's accomplished it in King Jesus, our Lord. We have confidence and access to God in him in full assurance through his faithfulness. So I beg you, don't lose heart because of my sufferings on your behalf. That's your glory. Because of this, I am kneeling down before the Father, the one who gives the name of family to every family that there is in the heaven and on earth. My prayer is this, that he will lay out all the riches of his glory to give you strength and power through his spirit in your inner being, that the king may make his home in your hearts through faith, that love may be your root and your firm foundation, and that you may be strong enough with all God's holy ones to grasp the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the king's love though actually it's so deep that nobody can really know it. So may God fill you with all his fullness. So, to the one who is capable of doing far, far more than we can ask or imagine, granted the power which is working in us, to him be glory in the church and in King Jesus, to all generations and to the ages of ages. Amen. 
So then, this is my appeal to you. Yes, it's me, the prisoner in the Lord. You must live up to the calling you received. Bear with one another in love. Be humble, meek, and patient in every walk with one another. Make every effort to guard the unity that the Spirit gives with your lives bound together in peace. There is one body and one Spirit you were after all, called to one hope which goes with your call. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure the king used when he was distributing gifts. That's why it says, when he went up on high, he led bondage itself into bondage and he gave gifts to people. When it says here that he went up, what this means is that he also came down into the lower place, that is, the earth. The one who came down is the one who also went up, yes, above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. So there were the gifts that he gave. Some were to be apostles, others prophets, others evangelists, and others pastors and teachers. Their job is to give God's people the equipment they need for their work of service, and so to build up the king's body. The purpose of this is that we should all reach unity in our belief and loyalty and in knowing God's Son. Then we shall reach the stature of the mature man, measured by the standards of the king's fullness. As a result, we won't be babies any longer. We won't be thrown this way and that on a stormy sea, blown about by every gust of teaching, by human trickster, by their cunning and deceitful scheming. Instead, we must speak the truth in love and so grow up in everything into him, that is, into the king who is the head. He supplies the growth that the whole body needs, linked as it is and held together by every joint which supports it, which each member doing its own proper work. Then the body builds itself up in love. So this is what I want to say. I am bearing witness to it in the Lord. You must no longer behave like the Gentiles, foolish-minded as they are. Their understanding is darkened. They are cut off from God's life because of their deep-seated ignorance, which springs from the fact that their hearts are hard. They have lost all moral sensitivity and have given themselves over to whatever takes their fancy. They go off greedily after every kind of uncleanness, but that's not how you learned the king. If indeed you did hear about him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth about Jesus himself, that teaching stressed that you should take off your former lifestyle, the old humanity. That way of life is decaying as a result of deceitful lusts. Instead, you must be renewed in the spirit of your mind and you must put on the new humanity which is being created the way God intended it, displaying justice and genuine holiness. Put away lies then, each of you. Speak the truth with your neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry, but don't sin. Don't let, the, don't let the sun go down on you while you're angry, and don't leave any loophole for the devil. The thief shouldn't steal any longer, but should rather get on with some honest manual work, so as to be able to share with people in need. Don't let any unwholesome word escape your lips. Instead, say whatever is good and will be useful in building people up, so that you will give grace to those who listen. And don't disappoint God's Holy Spirit, the Spirit who put God's mark on you to identify you on the day of freedom. All bitterness and rage, all anger and yelling, and all blasphemy, put it all away from you and with all wickedness. Instead, be kind to one another, cherish tender feelings for each other, forgive one another, just as God forgave you in the King. So you should be imitators of God like dear children. Conduct yourselves in love just as the Messiah loved us and gave himself for us as a sweet-smelling offering and sacrifice to God. As for fornication, uncleanliness of any kind, or greed, you shouldn't even mention them. You are, after all, God's holy people. Shameful, stupid, or coarse conversations are quite out of place. Instead, there should be thanksgiving. You should know this. You see no fornicator, nobody who practices uncleanness, no greedy person, in other words, an idolater, has any inheritance in the Messiah's kingdom or in God's. Don't let anyone fool you with empty words. It's because of these things, you see, that God's wrath is coming on people who are disobedient. So don't share in their practices. After all, at one time you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. So behave as children of light. Light has its fruit, doesn't it? In everything that's good and just and true. Think through what's going to be pleasing to the Lord. Work it out. So don't get involved in the works of darkness, which all come to nothing. Instead, expose them. The things they do in secret, you see, are shameful even to talk about. But everything becomes visible when it's exposed to the light. Since everything that is visible is light, 
That's why it says, wake up, you sleeper. Rise up from the dead. The Messiah will shine on you. So take special care of how you conduct yourselves. Don't be unwise, but be wise. Make use of any opportunity you have because these are wicked times we live in. So don't be foolish. Rather, understand what the Lord's will is and don't get drunk with wine. That way lies dissipation. Rather, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and chanting in your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. Be subject to one another out of reverence for the Messiah. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. The man you see is the head of the woman, just as the Messiah, too, is the head of the church. He himself, the Savior of the body. But just as the church is subject to the Messiah, in the same way, women should be subject in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as the Messiah loved the church and gave himself for it, so that he could make it holy, cleansing it by washing it in water through the word. He did this in order to present the church to himself in brilliant splendor, without a single spot or blemish or anything of the kind, that it might be holy and without blame. That's how husbands ought to love their own wives just as they love their own bodies. Someone who loves his wife loves himself. After all, nobody ever hates his own flesh. He feeds it and takes care of it, just as the Messiah does with the church, because we are part of his body. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. The hidden meaning in this saying is very deep, but I am reading it as referring to the Messiah and the church. Anyway, each one of you must love your wife as you love yourself, and the wife must see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is right and proper. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment that comes with a promise attached, so that things may go well with you and that you may live a long life on earth. Fathers, don't make your children angry. Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your human masters with respect and devotion, with the same single-mindedness that you have towards the Messiah. You must get on with your work, not only when someone is watching you, as if you were trying to please another human being, but as slaves of the Messiah. Do God's will from your heart. Get on with your tasks with a kind and ready spirit, as if you were serving the master himself and not human beings. After all, you know that if anyone, slave or free, does something good, they will receive it back from the master. Masters, do the same to them. Give up using threats. You know, after all, that the master in heaven is their master and yours, and he is no respecter of persons. What else is there to say? Just this. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on God's complete armor. Then you'll be able to stand firm against the devil's trickery, the warfare we're engaged in. You see, isn't against flesh and blood. It's against the leaders, against the authorities, against the powers that rule the world in the dark age, against the wicked spiritual elements in the heavenly places. For this reason, you must take up God's complete armor. Then, when wickedness grabs its moment, you'll be able to withstand to do what needs to be done and still be on your feet when it's all over. So stand firm. Put the belt of truth round your waist. Put on justice as your breastplate. For shoes on your feet, ready for battle, take the good news of peace. With it all, take the shield of faith. If you've got that, you'll be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. Pray on every occasion in the Spirit, with every type of prayer and intercession. You'll need to keep awake and alert for this, with all perseverance and intercession for all God's holy ones, and also for me. Please pray that God will give me his words to speak when I open my mouth, so that I can make known loud and clear the secret truth of the gospel, that after all is why I'm chained up as an ambassador. Pray that I may announce it boldly. That's what I'm duty-bound to do. It's important that you should know how things are with me and what I'm up to. So our brother, Tychicus, will tell you about it. He is a loyal servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you with this in mind, so you may know how things are with us, and so that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the whole family, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus the Messiah. Grace be with all who love our Lord, King Jesus, with a love that never dies. Can you imagine being the first, the first group where someone gets up and delivers this message? And what would then happen is essentially what we've spent the last two months doing is that person would probably stick around and you'd continue to gather and they'd ask questions and say, well, hold on, 
Paul said this. What did he mean by that? Because the person who would deliver a letter was often the person who would then also respond to questions and thoughts and things like that and would in a way expound and teach through that letter. And as we've gone through this this summer, if there's parts in there and like there's all sorts of cultural things going on that you can see probably made complete sense to the first century church as they heard it. And so if you missed parts of this, I would challenge you, go back, read through the letter of Ephesians. So grab a letter, read it start to finish and see how it hits you. If I were redoing this series, I would have started by reading the whole letter and then taking nine weeks and teaching on it and ending with reading the letter. I think it's just a beautiful way to approach scripture and to try and actually pull everything in that Paul is trying to get across without us trying to put our own ideas onto it. So let's do this. Let's stand. Even with trying to remove other parts of the service, I know reading through that was going to be a little bit longer, but I, I just felt like this would be a, a, a good way to end this series and bring closure as we read through this scripture and hear so many of these. And so I want to I just pray. I think today's message through the armor of God can be a difficult one. I think it can be something where maybe we need to change our approach with the world and how we do this. And yeah, I think that there's a lot for us to be able to work on. And so I'm going to trust that each one of us are just listening to um, how God's spirit is leading us and begin to take that into our life this week. Jesus, we are so thankful, Lord, just for, for what we have. God, that we have these letters, that we have the Bible. Lord, that we are able to, to look into this and to try and grasp what it was like in that moment and, and, and what was being said. And God, that these words that are inspired by you, Lord, they weren't, they weren't written to us, but they were written for us. And you knew that these letters would be lasting millennia as your church is being equipped to go and bring your kingdom into this world. God, I pray that that would happen this week in each and every one of us. God, that, that this community right here, Lord, would be a community that is focused on your kingdom, Lord, and seeing a difference made in this world. God, help us to stand firm this week. God, not to retaliate, Lord, but to stand firm in you. So, Lord, we, we just ask this in your name. Amen.